podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Four games on the other side of the world. 208,000 fans at the matches in Australia alone. Three victories, one disappointing draw, plenty of positive moments with two underlying problems managed impressively by the new Manchester United manager, Eric Ten Hag. This is Series 8, Episode 2 of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast with me, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. As always, a very warm welcome to you and thank you for listening. We're talking today about United's pre-season tour, which hasn't quite come to its conclusion yet. There are still two games to play, but there's plenty to take from it already. We'll be talking about Ten Hag's media work, discipline, the fullbacks, Harry Maguire, the front three, and some impressive young Reds whose performance is demanded attention. We'll also talk about Cristiano Ronaldo and obviously Frankie de Jong. And next week, after the final two games of pre-season against Atletico Madrid and Real Vallecano, we'll continue to preview the season end of United's first league game against Brighton on August the 7th. Jack, before we jump into the men's pre-season tour, let's talk quickly about last night. We're recording on uh, Wednesday evening. We're both England fans. We're both United fans. Watching one of our players, United and England, score a backheel nutmeg goal in the semi-final of the Euros. Well, um, it brings a, a bit of a grin to my face. What a moment for Alessio Russo and for this England team will now play in the final on Sunday at Wembley. It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the game was already... Obviously going the way he wanted, but that goal was something so special. I, I love any, any moment where the player looks like shocked the moment the ball goes in. <laughs> John O'Shea at Highbury. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That kind of moment where they just don't even know what to do, do with themselves. Uh, but it's just so, it's just such a like raw moment when they're just like, I can't believe that's actually just happened. And I mean, Alessia Russo obviously hasn't, I don't, hasn't started a game in this tournament because of, Ellen White obviously being England's starting striker, but the way she's come in when she has been called on from the bench has been unbelievable. You know, she's, I mean, she's such a great talent has really kind of been one of the shining lights of the United women's team since it's come back. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's just great to see that A, United have so many players in this women's uh, England team, hopefully will go on and, and win the Euros that, that the men weren't able to. But I mean, it's just, it, it's just been like pure unadulterated joy, I think, watching the women play to such a great, great stand. I mean, the game against Spain had me like on the edge of my seat yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And, and, and we have to be honest about these women's tournaments. Um, they have these great games. There are still the games where because the development of women's football is unequal because of resources or talent or size of population in the same way it is in men's, but it is is less even than the elite men's game at the moment. So you do get games where England batter Norway and it was a great England performance, but it's not, it, it can be a fun spectacle, but it's not an incredible, tense, exciting spectacle. Whereas the England-Spain game just like a, a brilliant match of football and and so enthralling. Unadulterated joy across the country. Um and he did just it felt like it felt like one of those seminal moments that we'll look back on in terms of the women's game uh, or the women's national team in, in, in England at least. And I'm sure uh, you might know more about this than me. I'm sure 
uh, American US soccer had had a similar moment at some point because with yeah. the women's team having won many trophies in the past. But this felt like whether England win on Sunday or not, it felt like a, a proper seminal moment where in five or 10 years time, we'll look back and, and these massive crowds and massive attention and 10 million audience on the BBC will seem so normal. Yeah, 100%. You know, this is, I mean, I, every time there's a major women's football tournament, then there's always this hope and, you know, a lot of hype around this is going to be the, the one that changes it for women's football. And now we've got to build on the momentum. And I think as well, as well placed, as well meaning as a lot of those are, quite often it, it just doesn't come to fruition yeah, for, for yeah. a number of, re- of reasons. You know, A, it helps when the, when the team is doing really well. When England have always had a good women's team, but I think this generation has definitely, you know, taken that up another level, which obviously helps get the public more interested. It helps as well that this is play, being played in England in the summer where there's no men's tournament happening at all, you know, yeah. which obviously also helps get that sort of standalone attention on it. But also I think, you know, we're, we're sort of at, at a point where the rest of the infrastructure around women's football is starting to get better and better as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, previously when there have been moments when the women's game has potentially had a moment where this might be the stepping stone to something bigger, I, I don't, I'm not sure, A, that there was maybe the interest that we that people hoped for, but also I, the, the women's game just wasn't, the infrastructure wasn't properly built out. And there's still got a long way to go. Obviously, there's been decades and decades of underinvestment in women's football, which, and it's, it's that's not going to be solved overnight. But I think now, you know, if you're a young girl watching this at sort of 10 years old and wants to get into football, there are so many more places you can go and play now than there were even five years ago. And I think that alone will make a huge difference to actually you know, helping to make sure this change stays after the tournament. And also, you know, the Women's Super League is, is bigger and better quality than it ever has yeah. been before. Yeah, I think that's part of the key point as well, is whatever happens on Sunday, whether England win or not, but especially if England win, there'll be a whole new, a massive new audience for the women's game. And yeah. this yeah. time, as opposed to, to, well, I mean, there was still a good product when England finished third at the World Cup in 2015. There was all this excitement, but now new fans of of the women's game can go and watch the WSL when it starts on the 9th of September this year and see a proper, properly entertaining, generally really high quality league with four or five teams challenging for the title, three teams in the Women's Champions League and everything. And uh, being able to dive into that product after having seen England successes makes a huge difference. On that note, we'll begin previewing the WSL at the end of August. It starts on the 9th of September. Uh, as for United, lots, well, pretty significant turnover of players already. Senior Bruins loan from Leon has ended. Kirsty Smith's joined West Ham. Ivana Fusso's gone out on loan to Bayer Leverkusen. Fran Bentley, Diane Caldwell, Martha Harris have all left. And United have signed Canadian winger Adriana Leon from West Ham. Striker Rachel Williams from West Ham. Spanish forward Lucia Garcia from Athletic Club. Defender Maya Letizia from Brighton. Midfielder Grace Clinton from Everton. And a deal for Arsenal's Nikita Paris is not completed, but apparently is close. So exciting. Let's pivot back to the men's game and talk about United's pre-season, which is more than halfway through now. We're how many days away from the start of the season? About 10, 11. So United played four games at the time of recording. Two more to go. Uh, They first beat Liverpool in Bangkok 4-0, then 4-1 against Melbourne victory at the MCG, 3-1 against Crystal Palace at the same stadium, and then to round things off in Australia in Perth at the Optus Stadium, 2-2 against Aston Villa. Now things ended 
in a in a slightly sour, a rain drenched sour note. Uh, a last minute goal conceded to Aston Villa to ruin the perfect record and to ruin a good result in terrible, terrible conditions. But that final minute and the dismay with which United's players reacted, understandably, and the frustration betrayed how positive the rest of the trip had been, despite a couple of serious underlying factors that could have really derailed and taken the focus off of the team and off of the new manager. Until, yeah, until 85 minutes into the tour, sorry, 85 minutes into the Aston Villa game, it couldn't have really yeah. have gone much better, the tour, to be honest. I think, you know, obviously we talk all the time about not reading too much into pre-season and that is completely fair. But I think, and, and the results don't really matter very much. Like we're not going to remember no. dropping that lead to Villa. But what does matter in pre-season are, well, a, f- a few things. A, especially when you have a new manager embedding the system with the, with the players, it's trying to create better harmony in, harmony in the squad. And in the case of Eric Ten Hag, it's just mate stamping his authority on the club as a whole, not just with the squad. I think on all of those fronts, couldn't really have asked for any more to come out of the tour. It seems like the players have really bought into his system. I was, even from the Liverpool game, which was, despite the scoreline, probably the worst overall performance of the tour, I think with the first 11 anyway. You know, right from that first game, it, you could see that the players had bought into what Ten Hag mm-hmm. was trying to do. There was a stark differences tactically with how we were approaching the game, stark differences with the roles that the players were having to take up and how they were playing with the ball at their feet. You know, it, I think that has been shown and, and progressed throughout the tour really nicely. Obviously, we don't, we aren't privy to, you know, what's happening with the squad, not in the games, but everything we're hearing from interviews from the players, from Ten Hag himself, from whispers coming from other sources within the club suggest that Ten Hag really has, you know, laid laid down a marker with this squad and instilled a real sense of discipline, but also broken up, you know, some of the damaging clicks that were said to be in the United squad. So I think, like like you mentioned, there are there are things bubbling under the surface that could still make this a bad yeah, summer for United, yeah. which we'll come on to later. But I think the preseason tour itself was, you know, nine out of ten. Yeah, and look, there's lots of caveats to be had here. Uh, you've offered one of them that preseason doesn't like the results don't matter and and they can lie. But also the key thing is like, this is nothing new, a new manager coming in and the mood improving around the squad and the media coverage being really positive and all of this, this is, it's not like you can, things can easily go very wrong from here. Previous United managers and pretty much every manager that's ever come into a club, things look very rosy at the start. That being said, they are positive signs. And, and, and yeah, I mean, we can reassess in a few weeks, but there are signs that we can take. Um, and yeah, buy-in is, is the big one and, and the effort, the players and, and in fairness, given how divided that United squad was at the end of last season, given the seeming and apparent lack of effort in games and, and just how many negative things there were just to have a decent preseason is an improvement. It's progress. And yeah, we can reassess in future. Just before we go on to the specific things we've seen with Ten Hag and the media and with, uh, and with his tactics on the pitch in those four preseason games, I think it's worth noting first tour, proper tour for United since 2019. And just, I, I do think it's worth noting how I think it's underestimated or not underestimated, but underspoken about how ridiculous a concept these tours are. The fact that United can go and play in front of 300,000 people on the other side of the world is, I mean, it's, it's probably been stated before, but United in the Premier League and English football is, is a ridiculous concept and product worldwide, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it is pretty crazy when you think about it. Like, we, I think we've, we've just normalized tours now because obviously they've, they've been happening for so long and every top club does them. But yeah. when you actually think about the fact that you've just taken a sports team that is, is basically just, just, just based in, you know, obviously one town, one city and transported them to, well, in this case, two different countries, sometimes three, four, five different countries across the world, put on games that don't have any meaning or any relevance yeah. for, you know, anything wider than that game itself usually don't don't have a full uh, full team playing and if they do have a full team playing maybe play for half the game and you just see the pure excitement of everyone going to them yeah you know like <laughs> that this has every reason that people should not go and should not be excited about it and yet yeah. not only are the people obviously in the city where united are playing so excited about it but you know, even I've watched basically every minute of preseason tour. You know, like it, the, the level of excitement and the level of like the reach that the Premier League has is, is when you actually think about it in those kind of uh, in that way, it, it is ridiculous how far and wide the Premier League's reaches. And it's not just the Premier League; it's obviously like other European yeah. leagues too. But Premier League is like a, just such a standout um, among them. Yeah, and when you speak to ex United players or hear from ex United players, one of the going back a long time and and this is something Paddy Crowen says a lot as well the 1968 European Cup winning midfielder who who wasn't on this tour hasn't been on tour for a few years but has travelled around the world with United for the last half a century um, and and knows most of the United players from the last half a century so knows about this stuff and it, he so often says that players just do not players still don't get it until they've been on one of these tours and see just how big United are globally. And given United, the fact United haven't been on tour f- since 2019, even someone like Bruno Fernandes hasn't been on this before, but also Zidane Iqbal, Charlie Savage, Garnacho, Victor Lindelof hasn't been on many of these, uh, Ahmad. There's so many players in this United team haven't done this before and will have will have been shocked by it and enjoyed it or been intimidated by it. Who knows? But it is, it's, it is mad. I've, and, and they'll be saying Verrick Ten Hag as well. The step up from RXD United is still just absolutely enormous. We'll, we'll move on. But my favorite story was, uh, Victor Lindelof's birthday. He was coming into the hotel in Melbourne and fans sang happy birthday to him. So he stopped for pictures. I just thought, <laughs> imagine. Like we forget, Victor Lindelof is, I can't remember his age, but mid-20s. He's just turned 27 or 28. Okay, right. he's he's not much older than we are. And this is a kid from like a little town in Sweden. And he's walking into a hotel in an Australian city and a bunch of strangers just spontaneously saying happy birthday to him. Is that, it's just <laughs> football's, football's ridiculous. Sport is, I mean, yeah, football and sport are just silly. Ten Hag managed everything very well, didn't he? He was positive about tour, unlike Jose Mourinho and Louis van Gaal have been in the past. And they, they had perfectly very valid complaints. Um, and Ten Hag might have had those complaints. What the stuff we're hearing is that actually he thought this was all this was all fine by him and it was organised okay. And he had the final say on lots of things. As uh, one of the more notable and, and repeated stories about tour is him not allowing United's players to go on the set of neighbours because he didn't want them to be taking the energy to do that. He wanted them to rest. But publicly very positive about tour. And he highlighted the fact that it's great to be away together as a team for so long to to generate team spirit. He said, yeah, there are disadvantages, but this is a, a great chance to to generate that spirit. And yeah, he'd managed the media duties and, and the questions and, and all of this very well while all the time 
putting the emphasis on the football in his in his first press conference the unveiling back in uh, back in Manchester Old Trafford he said football is one two and three and that's certainly been the the case with this tour I think while there's still been all this access to players and to the managers and we're seeing a bit more of their personalities than I think we've seen in the, the last few years with United. So I think a really good balance this tour. Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I don't think I can really fault anything that, that Ten Hag has done so far as United manager. Like I said, we obviously aren't privy to everything that's happening behind the scenes and you know proof will be in the pudding ultimately when the Premier League season starts. But I think the way he's carried himself, the way he's spoken in the media, you know what we have seen on the pitch so far... The stories that we're getting about how he has sort of changed what's happening within the squad, the way he's treating instead of much more discipline, but behind the scenes, you know, I, everything sounds good. Everything seems to be heading in the right direction. I think, you know, in the media, just to speak on what he's saying, I think he's he's struck a great balance between, you know, not being antagonistic towards the media, which I think a lot of managers, a lot, a lot of managers sort of come into a job and sort of have already determined that the media is their enemy. You know, and, and I understand that because ultimately at some point they will be and they probably are just waiting for your downfall because that's, you know, what obviously gets them clicks on their stories. But he hasn't approached it like that. And it's tough because, you you know, in, in the, the moment the manager's speaking to the media, but they're also speaking to all of us. You know, that is our window into into them, into what's going on with the squad. And Ten Hag's done a really good job, I think, of, you know, telling little bits here and there about what's happening with the squad, focus very much on the football. And even with that, you know, giving little bits away, yeah. but maybe not quite so much. Yeah, he, he, I think he's just done a really good job. I enjoy hearing him speak, but I also don't feel like he's pretty, it's not quite like Ralph Ranić. Yeah. I, I loved at the time for how much he was telling us, but in hindsight, and I think I, I love that just because it was nice to hear something about <laughs> tactics, which we never really got from Solskjaer. But in, with hindsight, probably not the best way to deal with the media. Yeah, I mean, this is our football. Well, this is specifically how United work, but also our football fans work is we always kind of want the opposite to what we've just had. Yeah, exactly. Um, to be refreshing. But yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty blunt. He's pretty concise. But yeah, it's good. In terms of what we've read and, and seen and heard and what players are saying and he said and his, his other coaching staff members are saying, some changes. Yeah, breaking up clicks, one of the big things. Uh, players eating every meal together, breakfast, lunch and dinner. No phones allowed at mealtimes. Uh, no no players can be late. Fines for that. It's all pretty basic stuff, but United and this United squad were not doing the basic things right last season, so it, it's an improvement. And the press-ups for uh, for mistakes in training. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed the fact that even in the open training sessions, that when mistakes are made or when the, the team concedes a goal, they all have to get on, get down onto the floor and do press-ups and there, there was no kind of embarrassment over that and it's, it's yeah, and it, like the, the crowds in those open trading sessions were reacting to them and laughing and stuff and it's like, yeah, it's a bit grounding for the players, which I like. Yeah, uh, there's a great, for anyone who wants to get probably the most insight you can into what's happening behind the scenes, there was a great interview with Bruno Fernandes on Sky Sports last week. Yeah where he talked a lot about everything that's been happening, the, the discipline that Ten Hag is instilling in, in the squad. So we're, we're definitely, you know, there's no point in us repeating everything that's in there, but that's probably the best way to to find out what's been happening because it was it was a really good insight into just the, the small, a lot of very small changes that are adding up to a, a very big difference, I think, under Ten Hag. Yeah, and look, he's, he's taking on a lot of responsibility because he's not. Yeah. This is not just a coach. And that's something different from some other clubs and from many other very talented coaches and, and both models can work. But clearly what you have here is a, a, I mean, in some sense is a bit of a micromanager who wants to know every detail 
and that and at some point in the future for longevity and sustainability and for the good of the team and and everything there'll there'll be things that Ten Hag has to delegate but you completely understand why someone the manager coming into United now would want to kind of lay a marker down in every separate thing and so he is he can veto player media requests and and he wants to know what the players are getting up to at, at all moments and it's it's interesting i enjoyed one of the, one of the lines and like he's he's me, he, he's very welcoming to all all the staff that were on that trip from united and from the media and talking to them where his schedule allows uh, i liked one line there was that there was that great story where on the flight to bangkok where he basically spent the whole flight just like working his way through the plane yeah, just sitting yeah. down and chatting to like every united staff member on the plane I'm sure it wasn't the entire, what is it, like a 12 hour flight, but sounds like a significant part of it was spent with him just getting to know the staff, which is the kind of thing that when you, when you hear and listen to people who work for United that talk about how the club has changed since, since Sir Alex Ferguson left, you know, they don't really focus on the football. What they, what they tell you is that the club has just become yeah. less friendly, less welcoming. And obviously Ten Hag can't change that himself, but he goes a long way to setting well, that yeah. culture. And on the day of uh, that Ten Hag arrived at Old Trafford and was showed around by John Murta, I had colleagues who were sat in the staff canteen and, and Ten Hag came over and said, hello, uh, I'm Eric, what do you do? Um, and yeah, it makes a massive difference. And this is, again, this is something that will have to be reassessed in the future, but this is one of the big things that, whether he's good or not, we don't know yet. But there's one of the things that Richard Arnold is is keen for is to get everyone working to one goal again and to make everyone feel, to, to have a kind of a more inclusive working environment. And I think that's something Ten Hag and Murta will want as well. And clearly, by the way he's he's operated so far, uh, is definitely the case. And that's how it should be at United. I've, in my opinion, Manchester United historically should be about the people as one of its main things and about treating people right. And it's improved a little bit over the last few months after some some poor things in the past. Uh, final thing on, on Ten Hag, off the pitch, I liked uh, one of a line. It was in a piece by Simon Stone on the BBC where Ten Hag's been telling colleagues, rest is training and kind of stating the importance of players being properly rested and not being overworked away from uh, from actual on-pitch training. In terms of on-the-pitch in matches, I guess let's start uh, with the front three, Sancho, Martial and Rashford. Um, good. Yeah, very good. Very unexpected as well, to be honest. I, yeah. It kind of came out of nowhere, obviously. Had the stories about Ronaldo not being in the preseason tour, which it sort of came out of the blue. And, you know, we sort of talked a little bit about Martial in the end of last season and about whether, you know, he might play a bit more of a role this season. But to be honest, I think we all expected that he would very much be on the fringes. You know, he's come in and, and has been one of the standouts of the tour. He's played very, really, really good football seems to be a lot more, I, I don't know if, if committed is the right word because I don't want to say he was uncommitted before, but whatever it is, it, it, he seems very on top of things, very focused at the moment. And I think the three of them, Rashford, Martial, Sancho, you know, they, they dovetail, they work really nicely, you know, and, and it shouldn't be, it feels like a surprise now just because obviously Sancho had a relatively slow start at United. Martial has kind of been out in the wilderness for a while. Rashford had a bad season last year. And so, it feels like a surprise to see them play this well together now, but on paper, it, yeah. it should work. You know, this was the front three we were sort of building towards. This is what we all wanted. And they their styles on paper, when they're at their best, 
complement each other massively. So it shouldn't be such a shock that it, it, you know, it showed that it can work at least in a small sample size, but their styles play very, very well. I thought the way that Ten Hag's system sets up suits them a lot too, because I think what we've always struggled with is Martial's, Martial's athletic profile should set him up to be a striker that gets in behind a lot, runs at people and is making those runs in behind the defence for through balls to come in, one-on-ones with the, with the keeper a lot. He, that actually yeah. isn't how he likes to play when he plays up front. He doesn't. It's like, I think that was our problem with him last season is his movement, when, when he's not at his best, his movement is so, so poor. Yeah. And that's what it was like in the autumn of last year when we were just watching going... There is no point of having. He is a pointless influence on the pitch. We've always, we've always said. I remember li- making this point probably six years ago that what we really wanted was to combine Martial's finishing with Rashford's movement, and then you'd have the best player in the world. Yeah. Um, but I think what what's been helpful is that in in this system that Ten Hag is having, he whether it's actually part of the system or if it's just Martial playing his game, I don't know, but. Martial's actually been dropping a lot deeper than you would normally be used to. He's actually been, rather than being the player getting on the end of a lot of these attacks, he's actually been the, been the one sort of receiving the ball coming in through the lines from the midfield, dropping it after then Bruno or one of the wide players and then spinning and making the run into the box, which seems to be suiting him so much more. It's just odd that when you normally think of a player with that sort of profile, the athletic profile to match would be, you know, a Giroud type of striker, someone a lot bigger, probably with less pace, who wants the ball to feet and then will then, you know, make a run into the box to receive a cross. Martial's athletic profile doesn't match up with that, but that actually is the way he's always liked to play when he plays as the number nine. And it seems like the way we now are yeah. trying to structure our attack suits that game a lot better. Yeah, and look, think, I think things will change quite significantly once the season starts, once we know whether Ronaldo's staying. Tenag yeah. said it's vital that we sign a striker, which is... Of clearly not the greatest endorsement of Martial and it's been a good pre-season but he is not a player you can rely upon for no 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 I mean just in general but also even when he's at his best he's not a player you can rely upon to be a consistent goal scorer and to lead a team his first season he did that he scored 17 goals he was a teenager it was brilliant um but he's not done that and Martial when faced with kind of competition for his role not good enough, hasn't been in the past. So this was good. It'll be a confidence booster for him. If Martial can be an option for United going forward, then great. But the same is true for Rashford and Sancho in that mainly this is just a good confidence boost to go into the season. What what really counts is what they do against Brighton and against Liverpool and against Southampton and Leicester. And I do have concerns over this front three because none of them can be relied upon to consistently score even at their best. I think the most, the two really positive things is Rashford really needed that. He's spoken about how it's been so nice to have a good preseason, proper proper one without a tournament with like four weeks off and, and good training. Uh, he really needed that. Sancho also had a hard first year, uh, showed glimpses of brilliance. He needed this as well. Um yeah, so I think it's it's mainly a confidence thing. But Ten Hag says United need to sign a striker and that's even when he's insisting Ronaldo's not going to be sold. So if Ronaldo does go, which looks unlikely to be honest, because I'm not sure where he'd go, um, then there is there are proper problems there, I think, for, for given how many games United are going to play this season, especially. Yeah, 100%. I mean, even if, even if Ronaldo does stay... You know, we talked about this before that we are one injury away from just having one of those two available playing two games a week every week and Ronaldo for issues of age and Martial for issues of just reliability as a player though that you'd feel very confident yeah. 
relying on either of those players to be having to play two games a week for you every single week for you know three months straight until the World Cup. I, I think in, in on Rashford and Sancho, I think the thing with preseason is that there isn't a, in, in terms of of on what tra- what you can translate on the pitch, there isn't a whole lot to gain from preseason because obviously. You can have a great preseason, but the first Premier League game, if that goes wrong, that's you know going to weigh on weigh on your mind and count for so much more than anything you've done in preseason. Yeah, but I think a lot can go wrong in preseason. Like if you have a bad preseason mentally, you're then kind of in a situation where you're thinking, if I can't even perform against you know Melbourne victory and Liverpool's B side and all this kind of stuff when the pressure's off, like what's going to happen in the first Premier League game or you know third or fourth game when we play against Liverpool? Yeah, you know there, there's a lot that can go wrong, and at the very least from this preseason, you can say that I don't think there are any players in the squad where things went drastically wrong. Yeah. And to be honest, that in itself is an important thing. You know, if you can boost his confidence a little bit, that's good. We're sort of laying somewhat of a foundation, but it's it's a very shaky foundation. So foundation made of straw at the moment because preseason does count yeah. for a lot less than the first game against Brighton will. But, you know, it at the same time, it, it's been positive from all of them. And in Rashford's case in particular, I think confidence is has always been a very big part of, of how he plays. It was obviously kind of at a, a massive low at the end of last season. And for him in particular, A, getting a run of minutes with the first team, sort of having that vote of confidence being given to him by Ten Hag and then playing well when he was playing. You know, I think it can only do him doing good moving yeah. forward. We haven't got time on this episode uh, to talk about the defence, but we'll talk about that uh, when we speak again to you next Tuesday morning after the games against Atleti and Rayo Vallecano. We can also talk in that about the young players that have impressed, I think uh, most notably Charlie Savage and Zidane Iqbal, which is great. What's interesting is that Ten Hag is the one who has requested these two friendlies. And I think that brings us on to probably what should be our final point of this episode, but fitness things have gone well. There's been no injuries. I think what's really interesting is that, and this is kind of talking about the young players, but for example, Garnacho didn't get any minutes. Hannibal didn't get many. Polistri played and scored in the first game, uh, but didn't get many minutes. There was some Feith and Laird, but not loads. Key to Ten Hag's approach this preseason has been about building rhythm for the first team players, for the players who are going to play in that first five run of five games. And then he's asked for these two games uh, back-to-back, Atleti and Rayo, uh, Atleti on Saturday, Rayo Vallecano on Sunday at Old Trafford, so that almost the entire squad, and it probably, in fact, probably the entire squad can get 90 minutes under their belt before pre, before the Premier League season starts. And that's, that's if United can go into a season fit with a fit squad, I can't remember the last time we did that. So that's that's massive. It's, yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely huge. And not only going into the season with a fit squad, but just in general, improving the fitness of the squad as well. I don't mean that from injury free, but yeah. just the actual fitness of the squad was was poor before. Like, the, the players themselves have talked about how different it is under Ten Hag, the fitness they have. Like Rashford a few days ago was just saying he's the fittest he's ever been in, a, in his career, which, you know, that in itself is a bit of an indictment of what ha- was happening before because this is now Rashford's, what, fourth manager yeah. at United? Yeah. You know, it's, that is a pretty poor indictment of what the others have done in terms of working on fitness. And, you know, we obviously haven't really seen it in pre-season because no one's played more than sort of 45 minutes or 60 minutes in any one game. But we will hopefully start to see the, the start to see the fruits of that, you know, bear very soon. I think in, in terms of fitness of the squad, 
It's, it's massive. How many times have we gone into a season wondering whether Pogba's going to be fit? Yeah. Notable that within this first week at Juventus, Pogba's already got an injury. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like every every year we seem to always have some sort of injury worry going into the first game. Uh, you know, this year we also have like different worry in that maybe our striker might not want to play for the club anymore, which isn't good in itself. But at least in terms of fitness, it does seem like a lot of good work has been done Again, to just lay the foundations for the season. And and that's what I'm saying in pre-season. I think these are the kind of things, the stuff that you work on on the training ground is actually what's more important because those are the foundations that you can lay that will actually carry forward to the to the season. The on-pitch stuff that we see, as much as it, it's easy for us to buy into it because we see it so clearly, it's actually kind of less important than what's happening on the training ground. Yeah, and we'll talk a bit more. The fullbacks are an interesting one. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, let's very briefly round up by yeah the Ronaldo saga and the De Jong saga and their problems are the icebergs that are sticking threateningly out of the ocean but they've got this big bulbous base beneath the surface that could really rock the boat and they are problems United haven't signed a midfielder yet and Cristiano Ronaldo wants to leave and is going about it in just a really poor way so those are massive problems and the fact that Ronaldo and Sir Alex Ferguson were at Carrington on Tuesday supposedly to talk together about this and for Ronaldo to talk to Ten Hag these are concerns and they're not good and they, these are two these, those are probably the two big things that will really derail Ten Hag's first couple of months at United if De Jong and his potential transfer or non-transfer carries on until the end of August that's a massive problem if the Ronaldo situation is not sorted by the first game against Brighton, whether he's going to stay or go, that's also a massive problem. And it 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 will tell us a bit about the quality of this new structure, whether those problems are sorted or whether they linger on into September. Yeah, I love how you put that, the icebergs beneath the surface, because it really is, you know, for all the good that we've seen throughout this preseason, and it has been a lot of good, if we end up going into the season with either an unhappy or an unavailable Ronaldo and no new midfielder. I mean, there is a, a huge, huge ceiling being put on what we can achieve this season. 100%. You know, come at the start of the summer, if you just said we, we're going to end, we're going to start the season with no Ronaldo and no new midfielder, you would have just laughed. You know, there, there'd be absolutely no way in hell you would have imagined that that could have happened. And yet we're here now yeah. and that is a possibility. And it's an odd, it's an odd position to be in because I think I mentioned on the last episode that two and a half, three weeks ago, around the time when Martinez was all but confirmed, it felt like this transfer window was going really, really swimmingly yeah. for United in that, you know, De Jong, a fee had just been agreed for De Jong. We were going to get over those issues. Martinez was about to be signed. We'd already had Ericsson confirmed, already signed Malassia. We were, we were making smart signings, you know, and then a few days later, the De Jong saga looks like it's going to carry on and, you know, that massive bumps in that road. Then the news about Ronaldo wanting to leave. Those those things have kind of derailed so much of the good progress that we seem to be making with, with building and improving this squad. And if we do end up going through this season without a new midfielder, I mean, it, it's criminal. There has to be, like I said last time, I, I'm not opposed to the, to the club pursuing De Jong if they think he's the right person. And Ten Hag obviously thinks he is the right person. But we have to get someone in. Like it is at, It's pivotal that we do it. And even if it's not... Even if it's not, so we, we talked before, right, at the end of last season that we needed two midfielders. We needed probably a number yeah. six and a number eight. 
I think Ten Hag is probably thinking of using De Jong as a almost a hybrid between a six and an eight. But De Jong, to me, is more of a number eight in the way that he plays. Yeah. So even if we still want to have the chance to go back and get De Jong next summer, fine, but sign a number six now. Play Fred as the number eight where he's more suited anyway and buy a number six that can even play alongside De Jong a year from now. Yeah. You know, it, but signing another midfielder now doesn't have to preclude you from ever going back for De Jong if Ten, Ten Hag loves him and thinks he's the player that he needs to make this this team work. Yeah. But there are other strides we can make in that area that then De Jong could come in and compliment if we're able to get him another time. But it can't all be all of the eggs in one that one basket. Yeah. Uh, the good thing is the key to dealing with these problems for Ten Hag uh, is not ultimately what the fans think, it's what the players think. And if he can go to the squad and say, this is a decision I've made with Ronaldo or with De Jong or with this or that, then the key is that the players have the, the buy-in and he's got the buy-in from the players so far. And that's from a good preseason. He will need good results and a good mood to continue that buy-in going into the busy schedule, at which point there'll be more controversies, more draws, defeats, injuries, whatever. He's got that buy-in so far, which is very good. Let's round things up. Yeah, we'll be back next Tuesday after the games against Real Vallecano and Atletico Madrid to talk about the fullbacks, to talk about Maguire, uh, to talk more about Ronaldo, no doubt, and about De Jong, to talk about Zidane Bell and Charlie Savage. So we will see you then. In the meantime, Jack, where can people find your thoughts on Twitter? You can find me at UTDTate, T-A-I-T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. Thank you for listening. Thank you, patrons, for your support and allowing these extra episodes to happen. Everyone, have a great weekend. Goodbye. Podcast Network.